Well, good. Welcome back. We want to focus in on the role of the husband in the marital relationship and what does the Bible say. Now, this is usually the session where the women take copious notes, all right, and detailed, detailed notes. And uh, so ladies will be writing feverishly. And then when we talk about the wife's role, <coughs> the men will be writing feverishly. <coughs> you heard about the pastor who... Um, Became so pessimistic after dealing with so many marital problems in his congregation about marriage. He says, the next wedding we have, we're going to do that new wedding song. It's entitled, The Battle's On, O Christian Soldier, and Face-to-Face in Stern Array. All right. And he threatened to do that in his next wedding. Well, why is it that a lot of marriages end up in conflict? What's going on? Why is there so much strife? Well, the Bible gives us the diagnosis of that. In fact, I want to show that to you. Let's go over to Genesis chapter 3 now. And verse 16, it wasn't long into Adam and Eve's relationship where sin entered. And then as a result of sin came the curse And uh, Genesis 3.16 is um, actually addressed to the woman where earlier he had addressed the serpent in verse 14. Verse 16, he addressed the woman. Verse 17, he addresses the man. And what is the result of the curse? But to the woman, he said, I would greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, or actually it should be in the Hebrew and childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now look at the last part of that verse. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. The question is, what's going on? Why is this a curse? And part of our confusion in understanding this is, what does God mean when he says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband? Well, there's one other time in the book of Genesis that that Hebrew word for desire is used, and it's not used very far away from this passage. In fact, if you go over to chapter 4 and verse 7, you'll see this is the instance of Cain and Abel. Cain is very angry because God has not accepted his sacrifice. Verse 7 says, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. And it's, here it is, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. That's the same Hebrew word that we saw in 316. Her desire will be for husband. Now, what is God saying here in Genesis 4, 7? Well, God is saying that sin's desire is to control and dominate and master Cain. That's sin's desire. There is a sense in which the natural outworking of the fall, Eve's presumptuous way in going ahead of her husband, Adam permitting that to happen and not joining with his wife as one, God now lets Adam and Eve suffer the natural consequences of the fall. So back in 3.16, when God says, your desire will be for your husband, he's saying, 
Your desire now will be to control, manipulate, and master your husband. That'll be your desire. My wife, when she does women's retreats, and she was planning on coming and doing this one, she probably would have broken up with the wives and taken them aside, and she would have talked about this. What she usually says to women is, she says, I've never met a wife ever in our pastoral ministry or experience as a couple that didn't have some kind of an idea of how she wanted her husband to act and be. They all do. They all have a certain way, they think, that they want their husband to turn out, certain thing that they want him to be like. That's what they desire. Never met one that didn't. And God says her desire will be to control and manipulate her husband. And his desire, notice this, at the end of verse 16, will be to rule over her. The word for rule there is the word malach, which means to be heavy-handed. It's like a heavy-handed despot. So in marriage now, under the curse, marriage becomes a game of king of the hill. It becomes the battleground of the sexes. She wants to control and manipulate him. He wants to rule over her is the idea. And so there is this strife and there is this conflict that goes on that's internal. And so the idea is who is going to, whose ideas are going to win out here? Who's going to make the direction of this marriage? And there is strife and hardship. And, you know, it's like James asked the question, what is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? Isn't it your desires that do battle within? Now, in our contemporary Christianity today, you would think that James would have said, what is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, the reason why there are fights and quarrels among you is because um, she's a sanguine and he's melancholy. Or she's caloric and he's phlegmatic. Now, according to the Bible, that is absolute nonsense. It's nonsense. There is no such thing as distinctive personalities in the Bible as if those are fixed things in people. That doesn't exist. In fact, you know where it came from? It actually came from ancient Greek philosophy. Hippocrates was the one who developed the four-fold personality distinction that everybody's familiar with today that, that underlies all of the personality theories that we see growing up that even are a result of tests like the MMPI and Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory and the Taylor Johnson Tipper and Analysis Tests. And the underlying philosophy of that goes back to ancient Greek philosophy and myth. Hippocrates, some of you know Hippocrates because you know, you're familiar with the Hippocratic Oath that doctors have to take. Well, it comes from him. Hippocrates believed your personality was determined by one of four bodily fluids. Blood, phlegm, yellow bile, black bile. Four bodily fluids. And that determines your personality. So if you have too much blood, you're a very active, energetic person. And you can't kind of ADD on steroids. You're just moving around all the time. Just life of the party, sanguine type. Of, in fact, the Latin term for blood is sanguine. 
All right? It's where we get our English term sanguine from. Uh, yellow bile, caloric, Latin. Phlegmatic, phlegm. Black bile, melancholy. And Hippocrates used to say, listen, I can prove this to you. You take a really energetic, life of the party type of person who's always excited, very, you know, type of person, and he invented bloodletting. You drain their blood. Guess what? <laughs> Changes their whole personality. All right? So he said he could prove that person. So too much blood causes a person to be that way. Black bile, you know, that's a, that's a person who's really constipated. Too much black bile. Then Hippocrates would give him these really powerful herbal laxatives. And after you, this is melancholy, after you've been sitting on the john for two or three days, everything looks up. You're no longer melancholy. All right? Too much black bile. And the same thing with caloric and phlegmatic. All right? Well, you see, that's goofy. That's really goofy. We know, way, you know, we know a lot better than that. But yet, a lot of our personality theory. You would think that James would have said, what is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? It's those distinctive personalities. You know, she's got one personality, he's got... According to the Bible, our personalities are fluid. They change. All right? I'm not the same person that I was when I graduated from high school. And I tell my students, you ought to be happy about that. <laughs> okay? God changed me. I'm different than I was. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't have certain characteristics like my grandfather and my father. And I do. I have certain characteristics. But that's different than what we mean by personality. I have certain traits like them. But it's different than personality and trying to classify people according to personality. No, no, no. What is it that causes fights and quarrels in marriages? The Bible says that there is an internal desire within every woman and every man. And the bottom line is she wants to control and manipulate him and cause him to turn out the way she wants him to be. And he wants to dominate her and rule over her and make her turn out the way he wants her to be. And as a result of that, you've got now marriage becomes the battleground of the sexes, a game of king of the hill. Who's going to be on top All right, is the idea. So there's strife, there's struggle. That's part of the curse. Now, the good news is this. God comes along and he takes the sting of that curse away in Christ. That doesn't mean that we don't experience some of that in Christian marriages. We certainly do because we are still struggling with remnants of the flesh. We still struggle with it. But the sting of that course that puts within that husband a desire that he didn't have naturally, a desire to want to be a servant leader to his wife and a desire within that wife to be a submissive, suitable helper to her husband. And when you get that kind of thing, a guy with a servant desire to lead his wife and a wife to be submissive as a suitable helper to her husband, then you've got a great relationship. Great relationship.
Now, with all of that said, that sets the background. Let's take a look at what the Bible says about the role of the husband. And when we begin to talk about that, the question that comes up is, what is the nature of a man's leadership in the home? Because there are an awful lot of different ideas about that out in the world. And even among Christians, even among Christians, if I were to do a survey and have you write down on a piece of paper what you think uh, the nature of a man's leadership in the home and what it should look like, I'm sure that we'd come up with several different ideas, even in this room. What is the nature of a man's leadership in the home? Or what does God expect of a husband? Now we're getting down to brass tacks with that question. What does God expect of a husband? What does God expect of you? Or how is the husband's role viewed in our society today? Uh, there is a popular movement, even among Christians, of egalitarianism. Egalitarianism basically says the role of the wife and the role of the husband is exactly the same thing. There's no distinction between the two. It's just kind of a, a cooperative effort. So to be able to talk about these distinctive roles from, from, that, from their standpoint is ridiculous because it's all the same. Well, is that what the Bible teaches? Or what is the condition of your home? How does it function really in your home? How does that break down? What does the Bible ultimately say? Well, let's take a look at this. And gentlemen, there's three things I want to ask you to memorize, all right, for the ladies. Just three terms that I want you to put in the hip pocket of your memory to pull out every now and then and say, how am I doing? How am I doing as a husband? Okay? All right, let's take a look. The first thing you've got to understand, in order to be a good husband, you've got to be a learner. Now grab your Bible for a moment. Let's go over to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're interested in verse 7. 1 Peter 3, 7. Now the context here of 1 Peter, Peter is writing to Christians suffering the early days of the Nerodian persecution. And as they're going through suffering, I mean serious suffering, this is not light things. And this is where, according to 1st and 2nd century accounts, they fed Christians to lions. They would hang Christians from crosses planted upside down. They would take Christians and take hot tar and pour it all over them and burn the flesh off of them. Um, so this is no light persecution. This is serious stuff. Peter is writing to Christians who are undergoing that kind of persecution. And one of the big struggles becomes, how do I deal with people that I'm in relationship with? Some of them may be my boss. Some of them may be a leader over me. And they're ungodly people. And here in 1 Peter 3, 7, it's talking to Christian husbands married to unbelieving wives. Christian husbands married to unbelieving wives and their wives are bringing hardship into their marriage. 
They don't believe the Lord. They don't serve the Lord. Their wives are bringing hardship. This is tough. And what does he say to them, to these husbands? He says, you husbands, in the same way. You see that little phrase, in the same way? That means it harkens back to chapter 2. In the same way that Jesus Christ dealt with unjust suffering. Because he describes what Jesus does <coughs> in verses 21 to 25 of chapter 2. In the same way, he says, like Christ, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, if you take a look at the word understanding, that's a very deliberate term. It says, live with your wives. Sunoikos is the word here. Dwell together with them in a understanding or knowledgeable way. Um, it's the Greek term. The word understanding is the Greek term gnosis. Live with them in a knowledgeable way or with conscious sensitivity. It's where later on the, coin was, the term was coined about the Gnostics who believed that they had a higher knowledge of things. Well, in this particular case, this particular word gnosis, where we get the word Gnostic from, is a word that means to have a higher knowledge of your wife. To live with her with very conscious sensitivity. Wow. God says that to us as husbands. How is it? How do you live with your wife with conscious sensitivity? How do you live with her in a knowledgeable way? I always like the look of our guy here on this. All right? What? Because the world says, ha, they throw up their hands and say, who can understand women? After all, you know, I mean, one day they're really happy the next day they're sad and emotional and they just from day to day you can't get a fix on them they're like a satellite in orbit you can't nail down they're just out there roaming around who can understand women that's what the world says well god says not only can you understand your wife but if you're going to be a godly husband you have to understand your wife you have to understand. You have to dwell with her in a knowledgeable fashion with conscious sensitivity. I somewhat don't like the way that English translations translate verse 7 when it says live with them in an understanding way because a lot of men read that as, well, you know, you got to understand her. After all, she's a woman. I understand her. Uh -huh. Okay. No, it's not what it's saying. It means dwell with her in a knowledgeable way. In a knowledgeable way. As he says, as with someone weaker since she is a woman. That's not a negative thing. It's not saying that women are naturally weak. It's not saying that. In fact, the word weaker is actually, literally in the Greek, as with a weak vessel. All right? And the word weak does not necessarily mean that she's physically weak. You know, if you ever go to some of these health clubs and watch these women lifting weights, all right, some of them are not physically weak. That's not what it's talking about anyhow. It's, it's the word, it should really be translated delicate, all right? 
You are to treat her or show respect to her as you would someone who was delicate. Since she is a woman, that's a positive thing, that's a negative thing. Remember how I said she's the crowning point of creation? Crowning point. Only after Eve was created did God call creation very good. It's not a negative thing. It's not where he's, Peter's looking down on a woman. He's elevating her. You are to treat her with conscious sensitivity since she is a woman. That's a very positive statement. And show her honor is the idea. So the biblical implication here requires your time. You cannot know your wife without spending time with her. You've got to spend time with her. Now husbands will usually argue with me at this particular point. Is that quality or quantity? I don't know. I don't care what it is. Whatever it takes. Some guys are slow learners, so it's going to be quantity. Some guys pick up on things a lot quicker, so it's going to be quality. I don't care. Whatever it takes to know her. Whatever it takes to know her, you've got to know her. You've got to become God's resident expert on your wife. That's your responsibility. You've got to learn her. You know, I have counseled guys that have been married for 40 years. Maybe they're having a, a, a problem in their, in their marriage. And I, and I talk with them about how well they know their wife. And almost all of them will say to me, well, you know, I mean, I've lived with this woman for 40 years. I know her. Really? Okay, well, good. Let's demonstrate that. Um, I have a little set of questions, and you have a copy of it, by the way. 50 questions to ask your wife. And I'm going to give you an assignment. I want you to go out this week. I want you to have a date with her, and I want you to interview her almost the same way that you were with a television station in your area, and they were interviewing. I want you to interview her, and I want you to write down her answers. Now, the early questions are really easy. They're really easy. And sometimes they do pretty good. But as you go along a little bit later, they get tougher and tougher and tougher. Uh, name for me your wife's three greatest fears. As she thinks about the future, what are the three things that cause her the most concern? Where would she like to see your marriage and your family to be 10 years from now, five years from now? What is it that brings her the most joy in life? And what is it that brings her the most sadness in life? What is it? And invariably, after they do the assignment, they come back and they say to me, wow, I had no idea she thought that. I've lived with this woman for 40 years and I didn't know that. Wow. How well do you know your wife? Now, the Bible doesn't say it's a wife's responsibility to know her husband, although some women are really good at knowing their husbands. But it does say it's a husband's responsibility to dwell in a knowledgeable way with his wife. That's your responsibility. So how are you going to do that? Well, one of the things you need to do, this requires study on your part. How did God create women? What is unique about their gender? You didn't have to grow up worrying about or being concerned about a monthly menstrual cycle. You didn't have to do that. 
You didn't have to grow up worrying about unwanted pregnancy. That's the furthest thing from your mind. How is it that God created women? What is unique about the feminine gender? So that God made her as a female. Your complement in life. What about your wife? What is the unique and special thing about your wife? She has unique gifts and abilities and talents that are different than every other woman and a unique combination of them. Certain things that she enjoys and she's really good at. How well do you compliment her in what she is doing? What is unique about your wife? And then what about your wife's particular load? What is unique to her struggles in life? How is she different in this way? You know, some wives come out of backgrounds and families that are horrible. She was abused physically or sexually when she was younger. Or there's been a tragedy or some kind of trauma that's occurred that's a part of her life. A loss of a loved one, a sibling, a father, a mother. She struggled with physical problems, maybe cancer. Or maybe she and her family were in a terrible car accident when she was a little girl. And that made an indelible impression upon her life. What is it that's unique about your wife? What particular load in life does she bear? And then she's going to be responsible to bear as long as she has breath on this earth. What is unique about her that's different from every, every other woman on the planet? How well do you know her and what's going on in her life? You show me a wife whose husband knows her and I will show you a happy woman. There is something, listen to this guys, you think you may think I'm crazy here, but there is something about a woman that she wants her husband to know her. You know, I have counseled men who have unbelieving wives and the unbelieving wives have come into counseling and right in front of the unbelieving wife, I'll talk about these very principles. And I've had these unbelieving, atheistic, God-hating wives sit up and say, yeah, yeah. Now, she doesn't know it, but she's identifying something that God has instilled within her. That is, she wants her husband to really know her. That, that, is a, that is an element of intimacy for her that she desires deep in her heart. Even, even women who have terrible marriages and a terrible husband, down deep, even though she may not want her husband in his particular state or condition of anger or meanness to really know her, but down deep, if he was in a right state, that's what she wants. She really desires him to know her in the right way. So what is the particular load that your wife bears in life? You've got to be a learner. 
In other words, then he goes on and says, give attention to her as a weaker vessel. This means to honor her, respect her, cherish her as you would an expensive piece of fine china. She is to be treated with utmost value. I'm afraid that most husbands treat their wives like Tupperware, not like China. If you needed a vase for your house and you went to Kmart and on a blue light special, you bought one of those vases for like 15 bucks, you'd probably check it out, throw it in a plastic bag, take it out to the car, throw it in the back seat, take it home, put it up in the mantle, put some dry flowers in it, dust it off occasionally. But let's say, for instance, you inherited um, a 5th century Ming vase worth millions, millions. What would you do with it? I doubt very seriously you throw it in a plastic bag, take it out in the car, pitch it in the back seat, take it home, put it up on the mantle, put dried flowers in it, and dust it off occasionally. No. Now, I know what you're thinking. You'd sell it. And then my whole analogy breaks down. <laughs> All right. Just lost the whole analogy. Well, my point is this. You'd probably hire Brink Security with an atmospherically controlled vault that would take that 5th century Ming Voss worth millions and you would strap it down so that it didn't juggle during transport and it didn't get faded by the direct sunlight and you'd take special care of it in that way. You get the idea. Sitting next to you, gentlemen, is your 5th century Ming Voss. <laughs> no, pastor, it's the other one, the, on the other side. <laughs> he pats the guy next to him. No, no, no. <laughs> Your fifth century Ming Voss. That's who she is. Worth million. Now, that's what these words mean here. First Peter 3, 7. Treat her with respect as a delicate piece of fine china. That's expensive hand painted that's the idea she is to be treated with utmost value and when you have a woman who's treated this way she blossoms into everything that a woman was intended to be in a marital relationship you do that she blossoms she can't help herself without blossoming you know I've had men married for several years come back to me after counseling and talking about this very issue and she they'd say to me you know when you first talked to me about this I thought you were goofy she, but they say to me this, this Bible stuff works my wife has totally changed she hasn't changed really I mean she, she has changed in response to it but he's the one that's really changed she, he's just made the, the atmosphere in the home and in their marriage conducive for her to blossom into all the female attributes that God intended her to be. And he's the one that's been holding it back. The way that he treats her. Everything that she's wanted to be as a woman, everything that God has wanted her to be. Now, notice this at the end of verse 7. Your learning her affects your spiritual life. He says, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Well, notice, uh, there's a little phrase that I left out here. It says, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And that little word as is very important because 
Peter assumes that this woman is not a believer and probably some of the Christian husbands were saying, well, you know, my wife's not a believer, so I don't have to treat her like I would a believing wife. And Peter says, no, 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 no. You treat her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. You treat her the same way you would a Christian wife. No different. Even if she's an unbelieving wife, absolutely. You do the same thing to her. And if you do that with an unbelieving wife, then how much more should you do it with a believing wife? You treat her as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. In other words, gentlemen, if you feel that your prayers aren't getting any higher than the ceiling, the first thing you need to do is check your relationship with your wife. God says, I don't care how fervent and devoted your prayers are. I'm not going to listen to your prayers if your relationship with your wife's not right so that nothing hinders your prayers. God says, if you're not treating your wife well, then you're not treating me well. Wow. That's a pretty serious issue. That means her problems become your problems. Godly husbands don't say she made the mess, she'll just have to take care of it herself. Godly husbands don't say that. You know what? Every problem my wife has, every problem my wife has is my problem. But not every problem I have is hers. That's part of godly leadership. Every problem my wife has is my problem. The way that you treat her affects your relationship to God. Wow. You're beginning to think, uh, I kind of wish I was a wife. This is part of responsibility as a godly husband. This is what you ought to do. This is the way you ought to treat her like a fifth century Ming Voss. Secondly, the first thing you got to remember in order to be a godly husband is be a learner. First thing. Secondly, Ephesians 5.25. In order to be a godly husband, you need to be a Christ-like lover. Grab your Bible. Let's go over to Ephesians 5.25. The Apostle Paul, again, addressed husbands here. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now the question comes is, what is the love that, is a, that a man is to have for a woman? What kind of love is this supposed to be? Well, one of the things we find out is that our American culture doesn't help us here because the way that our American culture defines a man's love for a woman, it's more of a macho sexual conquest approach to love. That's the popular view. I'll show her I love her. I'll grab her and take her to bed. That way I show her I love her. No, because that's basically taking from a woman, not giving to a woman. And every time we find the New Testament describe Christ-like love, as Ephesians 5.25 says here, we're supposed to love as Christ loved the church. What kind of love is that? God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son. Galatians 2.20, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. 
Right here in Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wife, Jesus Christ also loved the church and gave himself for, up for her. How is Christ-like love manifested? Not in taking from a woman, but in giving to a woman. Wow. Where to love is Christ's love. How did Christ love? He loved by giving. How are we supposed to love as husbands? We're supposed to be loved by giving. That's the way we love. We don't take from her. We give to her. Any man can take, but it takes a true masculine man to give without expecting anything in return. That's true masculinity. Any man can take, but biblical love really means giving. Biblical love really is the real test of masculinity because God-like love gives. If we're going to love as Christ loved, then Christ gave, we're supposed to give. Give our time. We should never act as if our wife's problems are her making a mountain out of a molehill. No. Never act that way. And I realize there are some sinful wives who are constant complainers. I realize that. And you may be married to one that complains a lot. Um, and that makes it a little bit more difficult. But the Bible doesn't provide a footnote here. It says, only give to a wife to, who is sweet and nice and adorable. Doesn't say that. No, no exception to this. It says, give to her whether she's a contentious woman, complainer, or grumbler or not. You still have a Christ-like responsibility to love her. Wow. No exception clauses here in the fine print. In fact, there is no fine print. So biblical love is the real test of masculinity. God-like love gives. It doesn't take. Now, to what degree is a husband supposed to show this kind of love to his wife? This is a good question. How far do we go with this thing? I mean, um, uh, does the Bible illustrate this? Well, notice in Ephesians 5.25, it says we're supposed to love as Christ loves. So the natural question is, how did Jesus love? Well, one thing we know, 1 John 4.19 says, he... We love him because he first loved us. Hmm. We love him because he first. So Jesus was a first type lover. Jesus didn't wait for us to love him before he loved us. A lot of husbands do that. They wait for their wives to love them and then they love them back. No, no, no. Jesus didn't do that. So if we're going to be Christ-like lovers, we're going to be the ones to initiate love to them. Even if they don't return the love, absolutely. Even if they don't return the love, then you're being Christ-like. In fact, when Christ loved, they crucified him. When Christ loved, they put him to death. If you're going to be a Christ-like lover, you're going to love in the same way. Not expecting anything in return, not on the basis of whether she's nice and sweet and adorable and kissable or any of that stuff. Because sometimes she's not. No. You're to love 
first because Christ loved first. Ephesians 5.25, not only are we supposed to love first, but we're also supposed to love most. Christ loved, we are to love as uh, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loved most to the point of giving up his own life. And that's what a husband should do for a wife. And thirdly, we're supposed to love unmistakably. 1 John 3.18, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. That means don't just tell her that you love her. You show it to her by what you do, indeed, and truthfully. To love in truth means to love with integrity, not with a false face, not with a facade, not with a fake. To love unmistakably, where she is absolutely 100% convinced in her mind, he loves me. He loves me. I think, I would hope, my wife were here, she could confirm. If I were to drag my wife up here and ask her, do, and you were to ask her, do you think he loves you? She would look at you straight in the eye and say, oh yes, he 100% loves me. That's it. Now, that's the kind of love. It's the Christ-like love that gives Furthermore, notice this, Ephesians 5.28. We're all supposed to love, we're also supposed to love as we do our own bodies. Wow. In other words, the Bible always assumes we already love ourselves an awful lot. Bible always assumes that. We love ourselves an awful lot. Nowhere in the Bible does it say we have a problem with loving ourselves. You know, there are, there are people who, who propagate this among Christians, that somehow um, Christians need to love themselves more. There are prominent Christian psychologists that propagate that on the radio all the time. Christians need to love themselves. No, do you know that there's not a single command anywhere in the Bible that says that we need to love ourselves more, but the Bible repeatedly and constantly says we need to love ourselves less? Wow. Just a, a few years ago, I had a, a young college girl come into my office. She saw I was in the office. She stopped by and she says, Dr. Street, do you have a few moments? And I said, sure, come on in. So she sat down. I said, what's wrong? And I'll change her name. I'll call her Pam. I said, what's wrong, Pam? And she kind of looked at the floor and had this droopy look. You know, I call it the bulldog look. You know, you ever seen a bulldog with the, the, all the skin that hangs on his face? This is a real droopy look. I'm going, what is the problem? She says to me, I hate myself. You do? Yeah. Uh, are, are you miserable? Oh, yeah. Are you unhappy? Well, why do you hate yourself? Then usually when you ask a question like that, you'll get a whole litany of responses. You'll get a response like, I'm too tall, I'm too short, I'm too fat, I'm too skinny. I got big ears, crooked nose. Nobody likes me, everybody hates me, think I'll go eat worms, all right? Um, kind of response, 
I'm not athletic enough. I'm not academic enough. On and on and on, ad, ad infinitum, ad nauseum. So Pam gave me all her reasons. And I remember sitting there saying to Pam, Pam, do you know that nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that man has a problem with loving himself? And the tears were rolling at this point. No. She says, I didn't know that. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that. I said, now, there are certainly certain things that you hate about yourself. That's true. You're too tall, too short, too fat, too skinny, not athletic enough, not academic enough, da 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 But the very fact that you hate that aspect about yourself demonstrates that you love yourself an awful lot. Now she's looking up from the floor and looking me straight in the eye. What do you mean, she says? I mean by that, that you came in and you told me you hated yourself, right? Mm -hmm. You told me you were miserable, right? Uh -huh. You told me you were really unhappy, right? Uh -huh. You told me all that. That none of this makes sense to me. Well, why not, she says. I said, well, because if you really hated yourself, if that were really true, your view of yourself was way down here in the gutter, then <laughs> the very fact that you were too tall, too short, too fat, too skinny, not athletic enough, not academic enough, you'd be happy about that. Because you hate yourself anyhow, you'd say, ha! <laughs> I hate myself anyhow, that's just the way I am. I'm a fat, skinny, too tall, too short, non-academic, <laughs> that's just me. But that's not what you, you feel. <laughs> she says, that's right. I said, do you know where that comes from? Mm, no. That comes from a very high view of self. In other words, you want life to come in way up here for you. I want to be normal. I want to be super attractive. I want to be, you fill in the blank, athletic. I want to be more academic. I want to be, that's what you think. Where does that come from? Low self-esteem, a low view of self or high view of self? High view of self. Now, her mouth is like this. And you can tell this is rearranging her whole paradigm in her mind. You see, life should be here, but life is coming in way down here. And it's the disparity between those two things that are making you really unhappy, miserable, depressed, and saying you hate yourself. Now, let's look at this biblically, Pam. What should we think about our life? We should think that if we really got what we deserved, you and I, Pam, would be in hell right now if we really got what we deserved. But we're not. By God's grace, we're not. And to top it off, Pam, God saved you and me. Ah, we deserve hell. And he saved us. 
That means what I firmly believe about myself is down here. Everything that I enjoy in life is a bonus. Every day is a blessing. So we talked about that. The very next hour, I saw Pam in the cafeteria at the college. And she was going through the salad line. And I'm sitting there at the table watching Pam go through the salad line. And she comes up to this great big bowl of red cherry tomatoes. And she's rifling through those red cherry tomatoes. And she'll pick one out. And she'll look at it for a little bit. And then she put it on her salad. And she put another one out. Look at it for a little bit. Put it back. Pick another one out. And she put it on her salad. And then she put it out. Look at her. And, then, and I'm saying to myself, what is Pam doing? Oh, I know what Pam's doing. Pam hates herself. So as a result, she's picking out the worst cherry tomatoes in the bunch. That's what she's doing. No, that's not what Pam is doing. What is Pam doing? Pam is picking out the reddest, sweetest, juiciest red tomatoes in the whole bunch. Why? Why was Pam doing that? Because she loves herself. My wife usually has a big bowl of apples, oranges, and stuff sitting in the middle of the dining room table, and you'll watch college. My sons come through and some of their friends, and they'll stop by and look at the apples, and they'll pick one up. Boom. Boom. What are they doing? They're looking for the worst one in the bunch, right? No, they're not. Our natural default sinful nature is to love self an awful lot. That's our natural default. That's why we always believe we deserve the best. Watch women in the produce section of the grocery store. You want to see a display of self-love? Man, you'll see it there. <laughs> <laughs> go to these workout centers and watch some of these guys work out by the way if you're self-conscious don't ever go there because they have mirrors you see yourself in five dimensions all right and there they are in front of the mirror <laughs> you know now what do they do why do they do that because they hate themselves right no, 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 they don't hate themselves. They love themselves intently. And if they love their wives with the same degree of passion that they already love themselves, they'd have great marriages. <sighs> no wonder the Bible says. So, verse 28. Husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. I can tell most of you guys love yourself pretty good. I mean, your hair is combed. You look clean. None of you smell bad. I haven't been that close to all of you yet. but And your wives may have a different opinion. <laughs> but you do take care of yourself pretty well. What happens when you, you get cold? 
You, you make sure you find something warm to drink and you cover so, or you hurt yourself. You make sure that that gets taken care of as quickly as possible or, or you're too hot. You make sure you get something cold to drink or you go in some air conditioning. You're always taking care of yourself to the same degree that you do that to yourself. That's, and to a greater degree, you are to do that with your wife. You're thinking about her first and foremost, even above yourself. You are to love your wives with the same degree of passion that you already love yourself. That's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 22, where the Pharisee says, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was not saying you need to love yourself more. He was saying you need to love God and your neighbor to the same degree of passion that you already love yourself. Wow, that changes everything. That ro rocks my world. So the implication here is that we're supposed to love our wives as our own bodies, and we're supposed to love our wives as Christ loved. Those are the two gauges. And notice this, according to Colossians 3.19, it's very difficult to see this in the, in the English, but in the Greek, it's much clearer. When we're loving this way, this overcomes bitterness. Because sometimes I've had husbands say, you know, I understand what you're saying about me loving my wife, but you don't understand what this woman has done. This woman has a sharp tongue. She can slice you and dice you with her sharp tongue. And you don't know what she said to me over the years. This and this and this and this and this and this and this. Well, you know what? When you're loving as Christ loved and when you're loving as your own body, there's, you can't hold on to your bitterness. You can't hold on to it. It'll eventually dissipate. It'll go away. It's this kind of love that overcomes, I don't care what she's done in the past. I don't care if she's had an affair on you in the past. It doesn't matter. It's this kind of love that overcomes bitterness. You cannot maintain and hold on to the bitterness. You can't do it if you love this way. Wow. That's pretty radical. So the first thing we got to remember in order to be a Christ-like love, I mean, in order to be a godly husband is we got to be a learner. Second thing, we got to be a lover. Third thing, in order to be a Christ-like husband, you've got to be a leader. A leader. Now, the question is, what does that mean? Because the world's definition of leadership and God's definition of leadership is two different things. What leadership is not, first of all. Leadership is not being a dictator. Most guys think <laughs> that that's what leadership is. That I'm supposed to be a dictator. No. Mm. In fact, grab your Bible for a moment. And let's take a look at Jesus' definition of leadership in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. <coughs> He's talking to his disciples here, and he says, verse 25, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. 
Now, there's a good definition of the world's leadership. That is to lord it over people or to exercise heavy-handed dictatorial leadership over people. That's the world's definition of leadership. Verse 26, Jesus says, it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. That word servant there is not the word doulos, it's the word diakonos. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your deacon, your diakonos, your servant, a deacon. And whoever wishes to be first among you must also be your slave. Now we have the word doulos, galley slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Again, Jesus becomes the model again. So in order to be a godly leader, that means you are a servant to your wife. She's not there to fetch this, that, and the everything for you. Now, she may want to do that out of love, and that's good for her. That's fine. But she's not there for that. You're there to serve her. That changes everything. A godly leader is not a dominator as a result of that. Too many men think that they must make all the decisions in their marriage. That their wife shouldn't make any of the decisions or shouldn't have any input as the direction of their marriage. That's horrible. That's kind of acting like God didn't give your wife brains. God didn't give your wife talent. I know that there are some men who view their wives in such a negative way that they think that their wife is mindless but when I end up talking with the wife she ends up being far more intelligent than he ever gives her credit for and he's a fool if he doesn't take advantage of the unique mind that God has given her and the unique gifts and talents that God has given her he's losing out in his home and he's losing out in his marriage if he does if he if he feels that he's got to dominate all the decision making in fact, she has a feminine perspective on life that you don't have. My wife has helped me out in my ministry many, many times. I pastored back in the Midwest in the Ohio, Michigan area for almost 25 years. And I'll never forget, I'd preach a sermon on Sunday morning and then afterwards I'd be standing in the foyer of the church. And, and people would come up, couples would come up to me and talk with me and say certain things. And so on the way home in the afternoon in the car, my wife would say, did you know what Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. Smith was saying to you when they made these comments? And I'd say, sure. Um, you know, and well, she'd say, did you understand what Mrs. Smith was saying? Sure. She was saying da 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 And my wife would say to me, oh, no, that's not what she was saying. Really? Now, my tragic mistake was I took her for her words. My wife is reading between the lines, all right? Women are very good at that, reading between the lines. So my wife would say to me, you know what Mrs. Smith was saying to you? She was saying da 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 Really? Okay, that changes everything. So Sunday night service comes along, and I see Mrs. Smith Sunday night service. I say, Mrs. Smith, when we were talking to me this morning, did you mean da 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 da? Mrs. Smith says, Why, yes, Pastor. I have a pastor that understands me. 
right? I didn't understand her. My wife understood her. All right, she's the one that clued into that. She thought I had this unbelievable insight into women, and I didn't have any insight into them whatsoever. She's the one that said that. Do you know what she meant by that? No, I didn't know what she meant by that. You've got to listen carefully, John, she'll say to me. Listen to what they're saying. Okay, all right. My tragic male mistake is just to listen to the words. That's terrible. All right. What did she really mean by that is the implication. So you're, you're nuts if you're not taking advantage because you walk around, whether you like it or not, with male blinders on. If you have, if you use your wife to contribute to decision-making in your home, then you now have a feminine perspective as well as a male perspective, which is much more broader to what's going on in life and with people. You need that. And you're crazy if you don't do that. Thirdly, a godly leader is not demanding. He doesn't force her to submit. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say, husbands, make sure your wives submit. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that. But the Bible says, wives, submit yourselves into your husband. We'll talk about that in the next hour. It's not your responsibility to make her. And by the way, you could make her submit anyhow. I don't care how big and how strong you are, you could make her submit. You may be able to make her to obey, but you can't make her submit. It's like the little boy got into trouble and the mother set him in the corner. He had to sit there for a while, and pretty soon mom comes in to check on him, and he's still sitting there in the corner. He turns around, looked at his mom, and he says, Mom, on the outside I'm sitting down, but on the inside I'm standing up. <laughs> All right. Now, he had obeyed, right? Had he submitted? Absolutely not. You may physically be able to make your wife obey, but you can't make her submit. This is something that she has to do in her heart before God internally, and you can't force that issue. A godly leader is not demanding. Well, what is it? Well, leader, godly leadership, I like John 10, 27 when it says, this is a good description. My sheep, Jesus says, hear my voice and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, they follow me. In other words, you can't get behind sheep and drive them with a bullwhip. You know why? Because sheep will scatter. It's like trying to herd cats, all right? They just go everywhere, all right? You can't do that. No, no, no. How do you lead sheep? You get in front of them and they follow you. That's the way you lead sheep. That's what you do with your family. As a leader, you set the example by your own life, your own attitudes, your own actions, and then they follow that. They mimic that. They model that. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. He doesn't get behind them and drive them with a bullwhip like you do cows. No, no, no. That means he focuses on needs the needs of others, that, because that's what Christ did. 
What are the needs of my wife? What are the needs of my family? He focuses on those needs. He's always aware as to their needs and he's seeking to try to meet them. He, he's goal-oriented. He sets goals for his family. Where do you want your family to be a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? Where do you want them to be? How do you want them to be successful in life the way the Bible defines success? Thirdly, he sets examples of control in every area of his life. From how much he eats to what he eats to how much television he watches to watch what he watches to what he reads and what he looks at on the internet. It's in full view of everywhere. You know, I have a, a big computer at my house and a study. And I purposely set up our study so that my computer screens are everybody walking past the study can see my computer screens. They can always see everything that's on my computer screens. It's always set up that way. And I purposely want to do that because that, that way I'm accountable to them and that way they also know what I'm looking at on the computer screens. Um, that's really key. He sets examples of control in every area of his life. Everything that he does. What kind of example are you setting in your life for the rest of your family? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Um, he's a problem solver. She turns to him for help. That doesn't mean he can solve every problem that she has. That's not the point. Sometimes you can't solve every problem your wife has. But at least she knows that she can turn to you for help. Wow. That's what a leader means. He's a teacher. He leads her in the word. He leads her in the word. What are you doing? How are you leading her in the word? You know, it's not just the pastor's responsibility or the Sunday school's teacher's responsibility to lead your wife and family in the word. It's your responsibility. You lead. And he's a joy to live with. Proverbs 5.18 is really key there. You know, I've always wanted to be the type of a father as a joy to live with. You know why? Because I've counseled so many men who have families that dread when they come home from work. When I come home from work, I wanted my wife and my kids to think that that was the best part of the day. Because I had counseled so many families where wives and children dreaded when their husband and father came home from work. They, dad's coming home in 10 minutes. Head for the heel, hills. Hide underneath the bed because he comes home a grouch. He bites everybody's head off. He's had a bad day at work and he's going to take it out on his family and his wife and he's going after him. I've never wanted that to happen. I don't care how bad my day at work was. I don't care how bad it was. I don't care what fell apart. I've always wanted when I get home to my, for my family, or at least 10 minutes before I got home, to say, my wife and kids to say, hey, guess what? Dad's going to be home in 10 minutes. Yay! Best time of the day. Oh, this is great. Because I wanted to come through that door and say, hey, how's everybody doing? How's it going? How was your day? Tell me what happened. I want to hear about it. A lot of guys come home, grab the newspaper, plop in their favorite chair, grunt occasionally, when's supper? Would you have a good day, honey? No. All right, everybody's steering a wide path around dad. You know, it's hard to live at the foot of a volcano 
because you never know when that thing's going to erupt. And the, a lot of these fathers are volcanoes. You never know when they're going to erupt. And the wife and kids are walking around them, you know, afraid that they're going to erupt and go boom and spew all kinds of bad stuff. Nope. I never wanted that. Never wanted. I don't care how bad my day was. If you're going to be a godly leader, then you've got to lead with joy. They've got to look forward to what you're doing. So we got three things, gentlemen. Three things to remember in order to be a godly husband. All right. Now look at them for a moment on your paper. What are those three things? We're going to repeat them together and we're going to impress the ladies. Okay. All right. You ready? In order to be a godly husband, look at me, not at the paper now. Look at me. Impress the ladies. In order to be a godly husband, you've got to be a learner, lover, leader. Good. All right, one more time. Here we go. Ready? Learner, lover, leader. Now, I got to tell you, Jeremy and Serena talked about premarital counseling. Uh, I've been doing this in premarital counseling now for years. Back almost 25 years. I married a couple, Brenda Casho and Tim Jennings. I'll never forget that couple. I took them through premarital counseling. And at the end of it, I said, okay, on your wedding day, I'm going to ask you three things, Tim, in order to be a godly husband. You've got to be prepared to tell me what they are and what they mean. He says, no problem, pastor. Be ready. Wedding day showed up. He's in his tuxedo, all the groomsmen. I go over to have prayer with the bride and her family. And I come over to him, have prayer with his family and the groomsmen. I say, Tim, there's three things you got to remember in order to be a godly husband. What are they? He says, I got them. Learner, lover, and leaver. <laughs> I said, this wedding is off. <laughs> no, not learner, lover, leaver. Learner, lover, leader. Leader. Now, I tell that story because that helps to cement those three words. Learner, lover, leader. Put that in the back pocket of your memory and pull it out ever so often and say, how am I doing? Learning her, loving her, leading her. Let's bow for prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for all that you do in providing the role of the husband in Scripture. Help us to be Christ-like, godly men learning our wives, loving our wives in a Christ-like giving way, leading our wives in a servant way by the example of our lives. This we pray in Christ's name, amen. After lunch comes some of the best parts. <laughs> the role of the wife and